Hello, welcome to the Wasting Time podcast. This is episode 34. Um, how's it going, Chris? You alright? It's going well, Nick. It's going well. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Um, I guess I'm a bit out of touch at the moment with what's going on in the world um, of music. Is there anything, anything that I should be, should be aware of? Been a few sort of Christmas releases. Uh, did, did you see Blink-182 put out a new Christmas song yesterday? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, what did they put out? Was it a cover or was it like a... No, original? no, it's original. It's okay. original. Uh, it's called Not Another Christmas Song. It's, right. It's all right. It's all okay, right. Cool. I'll check that they, out. They, they also... The Chainsmokers also put out a song yesterday featuring Blink. So a lot of Blink stuff yesterday. Yeah, all right. I'll give them a listen. Um, which, is a, which is a decent pop song. Except when you listen to it, tell me if, if you think I'm wrong, but it sounds like... The melody in the verse is just, it's just the same melody as I Miss You, which is a bit unimaginative. Okay. But, uh, cool. I'll get in the festive spirit at some point and get, get, get them listened to. I saw the Dolly Rots as well did a fairy tale of New York track as well. They did. Previous they guests. Did. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was fun. Um, but yeah, I listened to that, that uh, uh, Anti Flag single you sent over which, which oh is yeah good, so. that came out yesterday at the time of recording yeah is it, is that's that cool that, isn't it yeah is that the second single off there no i think it, no it's the third i think okay. uh yeah they had they had one called the opening track they, they'd already released called hate conquers all um, i think that was the one yeah i've heard yeah that that one's a bit sort of heavier yeah. Uh, whereas Christian Nationalist and this this new one Unbreakable on the poppier end of things. Oh uh, no no, it was Christian Nationalist. I've definitely heard that's the one. Okay, yeah, yeah so yeah. there's one other one which is a bit harder than those two. Yeah, really promising stuff. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really like it. It feels like they've kind of um, kind of reinvented themselves, but kind of without without changing. If that makes <laughs> yeah, any sense yeah. or just sounds Does, ridiculous. Is this like moving on from the? Because we both really liked their their last album in 2017, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. No, no. Look forward to hearing that record. Um, elsewhere, I mean, it's been a while since we talked about new music. Because last podcast, we just we just jumped straight into the interview, didn't we? Yeah. Um. So, going back a little bit further, um, there was that album by Rational Anthem, who who we've got coming on the show in a in a few weeks' time. Did did did. Did you get into that album? No, at not all? yet, man. Yeah, no, I'm gonna have to get on that. So I'll make sure. Um, yeah, give it a give it a listen before they come on. Um, yeah, for sure. What's your thoughts? Have you? Um, given it much? Yeah, it it it's it it's cool. Um, so I really loved it when I first listened to it. Like now, I've had a bit of time with it. I don't know what its staying power is going to be like, but I, I really like their sound. It's kind of it reminds me of Broadway calls a lot, and I. I was okay. Yeah, really no, used to be into them, that, so yeah. that's not a bad thing. Nice one, cool. I'll give it a listen. I'll give it a listen. But yeah, we as as I said earlier, we had Marco on uh, what last last week, a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, yeah, two yeah. or three weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, and it's it's you know there's a good there's he's got so much good material. Um, so editing and trying to cut it back was quite difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank just, you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, because there's just so much good stuff, so many good stories. So um, we should just. Um, r- roll this episode, I guess. So yeah, this is the Marco from from Sugarcoat episode. Let's just um, quickly give you some bearings, Marco, so you know who you're okay. talking to. So this is uh, so I'm Chris, and I am okay. based in London currently, and I've got my okay. co-host on the other line, who is Nick, and I'll let him introduce himself. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi, Marco. Yeah. So I'm based up in the northeast in Newcastle. So. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. I can recognize your accent because my my wife's uh, my wife's from Newcastle. My wife's dad is from Newcastle originally. <laughs> oh and no way. So we we yeah. So she has tons of uh, tons of family there still, and I recognize you. You could have not told me you were from Newcastle, and I would have guessed. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Great. And you would yeah. you would have got it. Yeah, I did. I did actually know that Marco because I, I, a couple of years ago, when, when last time I was in LA and I was at that place called the Riff where you were DJing at the time, my other buddy from oh, Newcastle, right. who, who I was with, got talking to you and you mentioned how your wife was from that part of the world. So oh yeah, I was anticipating what a trip! You saying that there. <laughs> well, I guess obviously we wanted to um, talk to you about your sugarcoat years, but I, I guess it'd be good to just uh, hear about initially i guess what you're up to these days really and kind of what where's home for you and well i'm currently under a freeway bridge um with a cardboard sign so if someone comes up and gives me like a dollar <laughs> or like you know a half-eaten apple then um forgive me if i if i take a break um no but that'd be kind of funny if i just led you guys on to believe that i was like you know a homeless dude living under the under the bridge ever since sugar cult stopped touring <laughs> i don't know man uh no, I'm living in LA and, um, you know, just kind of like become a little bit more of a domesticated cat, you know, uh, yeah. a lot of us, you know, all the guys in sugar Cult, we're all still in touch. Um, me and our singer Tim are still pretty close friends. Um, and all the guys really, but like we've all, you know, all, but one of us, um, have started a family, our, our bass player, Aaron, I think he still thinks he's 18 years old, which is pretty awesome. Cause you know. <laughs> Um, I still think I'm 16, so you know I might as well be like on 16 and pregnant or whatever that show is. But, uh, <laughs> but like, so I've got two kids. Our drummer Kenny has two kids. Our singer has a has a daughter, and then Aaron doesn't yeah. have any kids that he knows about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, you never know. We we did a lot of touring and we had a lot of fun. Um, but uh. So I'm living in LA with a family and um, actually one of the things I do right now, and I never really talk about this publicly just because I don't think anyone would care, but like, um, as I actually gotten really into, um, I mean, I still do a lot of music related things, you know, I still like do some projects here and there. I do a lot of DJing, which is fun, gets me out there. Like you say, you saw me at the Riff and I, um, so I DJ a lot in, in different places too. Um, and yeah. Do some, you know, anytime someone calls me up, I jump on stage with a guitar, you know, because it's just super fun. I love it. Um, and I do some music for like film and television and then I do some work like developing other artists and stuff like that. But one of the main gigs I do is actually teach college, which is kind of crazy. Really? So, um, yeah. So I teach, um, I teach like music business and, um, you know, it's, it's all weird. Life's such a trip, man. You never know when one thing is going to prepare you for the next thing. And you're always kind of like, I think that part of the condition of being a musician and just being a music person is just, you kind of just learn to just go for it and, and kind of jump and hope the net appears, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So you get good at just sort of putting yourself, I think all the years of touring you get really good at putting yourself in situations where you really don't know what the fuck's going to happen and then finding a way to turn it into something awesome, you know? Um, so I think those are like the, the weird unforeseen survival skills and life lessons you 
get out of being, you know, a kid who says, I want to be a rock and roll star when I grow up, you know, I mean, it's kind of absurd on its face. Right. right. And then you actually somehow pull it off by hook or by crook. And you're like, Oh shit, I'm in a band and people know our songs and travel around the world holding a guitar case and, you know, getting on planes and going to places like where you guys live. And, you know, so you get all that in and, and then you kind of go, okay, but, uh, now what, <laughs> you know, like if that, if that ever stops or if you yeah. decide to stop it, then you kind of go now what, and it's, it's, it's for, you know, to make a long story short, it's been a real, um, revelation to, um, to me to realize how much being, uh, you know, in a rock and roll band prepares you for other grown up things in life, like having kids. Like when I was at, when I first had really, kids, you I was found like, that. Oh shit. Oh my God. hundred percent. Cause you're like, you're just used to that sort of like, and we came through, um, I mean, it sounds so pretentious to say, but we definitely came up through a sort of ethic, um, in our scene from our hometown in Santa Barbara, we came through a scene that was rooted in punk rock. You know, even though you might think yeah. of Sugar Call as being more like, you know, power pop and kind of more melodic and and radio oriented. I mean, we, you know, we cut our teeth playing punk shows, when we, you know, and and so I think the spirit of that um, was like, you just figure out a way to do it. You do it yourself. You do it just because you don't do it with designs on becoming, um, you know, successful. You just do it because you're because you're fucking crazy and and you're compelled to do this thing you know and then it starts to work out and you go oh shit all right fuck it we didn't expect this but we'll take it let's go someone wants us to go to england fuck yeah how do we get there we get on a plane all right cool i get the fucking window seat you know what i mean you just take it from there and then you get there and you're like oh shit i almost got hit by a bus because i didn't look the right way and then you figure out that the traffic's going the opposite way you know you sort of you just get really good at living in the moment and figuring shit out as it comes rather than this like fear-based um, model of life where you feel like you have to have everything in place and be 100% prepared before you embark on the journey. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, no, that... yeah. So what I'm trying to say is like having kids doing shit like that, you like, you realize you're like, oh, this is cool. I got this. I'll figure it out as I go. Someone's someone's throwing up. All right, my bass player throws up all the time. Got this, you know. <laughs> like someone's freaking out. My singer fucking freaks out, you know. So you you know you're always just like yeah, figuring yeah, yeah. shit out as you go. And then you know suddenly people will be like, hey dude, you want to come and be the guy from Sugar Cult giving a guest talk at this music school? And I'd go in there and I just completely like had no idea what I was doing and I just talked a bunch of shit. And they were like, we love that can you do it again? And then, you know, then I did it again. And then they kept my number. And one day they're like, Hey, do you want to try teaching here? And I was like, fuck it. Sure. You know, and it's the same thing. And you know, then these guys call me up from these guys, email me from England saying, you want to do a podcast? And here I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's the first day of the rest of my Um, life. There you go. I was just going to, one thing I wanted to jump in there and ask was, uh, so you mentioned like touring and stuff like, you felt that, that prepared you for having kids. Did when you had your first kid, we, was that still during the touring days, or was it after Sugar Cult kind of become a bit more no, inactive? It was, in it that was it, oddly enough, it was probably like in retrospect, it was probably at like our peak 
you know, like as big as we ever got because it was literally my kid was literally born. And this is if you've seen our Back to the Disaster DVD, which you can I think you can stream it free if you go, you know, search around on our Twitter yeah. feed or whatever. I've got it's streamable on Vimeo or whatever. It's called Back to the Disaster. We made this like we had this guy come along with us and just kind of shoot us here and there. And we, we ended up making this kind of feature length documentary, which seemed a little bit self-important and maybe uh, extravagant at the time, you know, because we still thought we were going to go for another 10 more years or whatever. And so we were like, well, fuck it. If nothing else, it's good to just have have this shit documented because things are going pretty good. And uh and so if you actually look at that DVD, you see this whole thing just happens to be documented because um, the guy was with us at the time. But we were literally on tour opening for Green Day on the American Idiot Tour. And um, so we were in America opening Doesn't for get them. Much bigger than that. Yeah, it was insane. We're, you know, I mean, and, and it was really interesting because they were like, the record has just come you know, out. And then we watched them just kind of come back to life. Like the, it was so weird to see this band that we – we knew obviously from growing up in the nineties and everything and our singer fucking had like, yeah. you know, it's not, it's, you know, it doesn't take a forensic expert to figure out that Tim from sugar cult was influenced by Billy Joe from green day. You know, just listen to bouncing off the walls. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, yeah, so our yeah. singer used to like fucking have posters of this guy on his wall when he was like a, in high school, you know? And, um, and here we are on tour with them and, and we just kind of hit it off with those guys, you know, again, they were just, kind of a lot like us in a way and that they are just dudes from California who grew up through punk rock and then happened to like pull something off beyond their wildest dreams, you know? So on a much bigger level, they did the exact same thing as us. Right. So we kind of, we hit it off with them and they were cool and, and we tried not to like freak out and like fanboy too much. And I think they appreciated that, that, they, that we weren't like, you know, that we were just kind of being chill with them. And then they asked us to continue touring with them. And I mean, literally Billy Joe personally asked us to go on tour with them in Japan in the middle of our U S tour. He was standing on the side of the stage watching us. And he like wrote something with a Sharpie on a piece of paper and then had our guitar tech run it out to our lead singer and put it down by his feet by the set list. And like, we're like sitting there playing some show and our singer looks at it. He's trying to read it. And then he comes up to me between songs and like shows it to me. And we just look over to the side at Billy and we're like, yeah, we'll do it. Like literally in the middle of a set, he like uh. wrote on a, with a Sharpie, he wrote, will you open for us in Japan? And we're like oh, on stage, we're like, yeah, you know, which I thought was so badass. Cause like, who does that? You know, you're, you're at a fucking yeah. stadium playing a show. And normally the way it goes for people listening, if you've even bothered to listen this far is, you know, you have that you know their booking agent would contact your booking agent and then your booking agent would go and talk to your manager and then your manager would have a band meeting and tell you guys and yeah. you'd have a big long drawn out band meeting about it and do all the financials and and analyze whether it's a good idea strategically and whether it was going to make yeah. money or lose money you know you'd have all these boring fucking talks but we just completely removed all of that from the equation. And it was literally just like on stage. Yes, we're going to fucking go and we'll figure it out. As, again, we will figure out how to make it work on the way to making it happen. Right. Which nice. uh, even at that level, you know, even at the fucking Green Day level, that shit that can still happen. So it was cool. Yeah. But we were in Japan. And of course, we had planned about a year off 
after that. We were going to take about a year off for the first time in the history of our band because we had literally been going nonstop since 1999 when we first like got together. Okay. We'd never come up for air because it was just like, you know, you get momentum and you don't want to fucking lose it. You know, it's like we always yeah. felt like the the average dude that goes home with a smoking hot girl that's way out of your league. And you're like, I want to have sex with her as many times as possible before she sobers up and realizes that that I'm not even anywhere near in her uh, her league, right? So we sort of had that complex the whole time we were a band. We were like, we better fucking do this as much as possible and never stop because people are going to come to their senses and realize that we're not that great. And then it's all <laughs> going to be over. And Tim's going to go back to folding sweaters at the fucking you know, J. Crew or wherever he was fucking doing before well, we, we were made there, it. You know? were, were there any moments where you were just, where, you know, kind of, I don't know, like where you were just like, ah, oh, fuck, I just, you know, can't do this anymore? Or, or was it just, you were all just full steam ahead? I, I think we were all pretty, like, we're all individually, like, pretty, like, you know, driven and, like, kind of, uh, kind of crazy, you know, to the point where it was, like, super fun. I mean, you know, on your worst day, you're still traveling and getting to play songs that you made up with your friends, you know, and of course, when you do it for three years in a row and you never come up for air, you can start to like anything you can. It's like you can be, uh, you know, show me the hottest girl in the world and I'll show you a guy who's tired of fucking her. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like you get tired of anything if no matter how great it is, you know, mm. um, and uh, and there was probably times along the way where it was like where it starts to feel like you know fuck what are we doing again we're going to milwaukee to play that place you know oh we're going to london we're gonna go to nando's again and get that fucking hot sauce <laughs> you know like but like you know it quickly goes away you sort of feel it maybe internally and maybe you can like commiserate with your bro like in the van ride to the thing like you know like oh, i'm fucking tired or man i want to try some do something else but honestly again you're living the fucking dream and you know you realize like i bet you there's people out there that whose job it is to fucking clean the you know railroad tracks at the subway station and they're probably saying the same fucking thing except for at the end of the day they have to clean railroad tracks at a subway station and we get to fucking sign autographs and do rock jumps you know what i mean and then you know so so it's like anything it's like once it becomes a job of course there's going to be some things that um you know there's going to be like you know and you find yourself doing that i have this i have this hilarious picture of our band i should try and dig it up and send it to you guys so you can post it it's like i took a picture of the guys backstage it was backstage at wembley we, we did two nights at wembley opening for blink 182 um oh yeah which yeah. is a fun story how we got that tour but um oh yeah yeah, well, a, yeah come come to that after if you want yeah. yeah yeah i'll come back to that remind me about that but but i have basically just to put this picture in your mind i'm like here we are at fucking wembley this like i mean when you're from california and you hear about you grow up loving bands from england of course and you're just like fucking wembley no way like you've heard of that shit before and then you're there you're like oh my god yeah. we're actually doing this and and of course it's just at the end of the day it's a fucking you know facility with a stage and electricity and you plug in and you play your your songs but there's something kind of romantic about it to feel like wow here we are at this place where like 
you know, in this amazing city where it's like 90% of our favorite bands come from. What the fuck? You know, so there is a certain like yeah. romance to it all that just you can't escape if you have a fucking soul. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's some bands like sure. some of the fucking bands we would tour with. And I'm not going to name names because, you know, <laughs> but like you're just like, dude, you're in fucking Tokyo. Get the fuck off of your Xbox and out of your <laughs> hotel room and go like eat some fucking blowfish like what the fuck are you doing or, or the bands would complain like you know that they're like fucking mayonnaise doesn't taste right in france or that the beer wasn't cold enough and you're like dude you sound like such a fucking asshole shut the fuck up you know you're in europe <laughs> europe europe figure you know our shit doesn't taste right and our beer is too cold europe was here first okay <laughs> <You know? laughs> kind of so, true. Um, true yeah exactly it's like you know um but anyways, I see the guys, I walk in and like the little like dressing room area we had or like little common area we had in the backstage Wembley and I see like just our band, couple band members, couple crew members, everyone's like sitting on a couch, like three feet uh, as far away from each other as possible, like staring at their laptops with like a bummed out look on their face. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> what the fuck are you guys doing, dude? We're in fucking Wembley opening for Blink-182 of one of two sold out nights like and Travis just gave us all fucking bottles of Dom Perignon like what the fuck is going on here this is supposed to be rock and roll and they're like uh fucking internet sucks here man the wi-fi is fucking you know you're like <laughs> yeah 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 um just to track you back um so what 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 was the funny story that led to the playing with Blink 182 um that you alluded to well, yeah, but you got you to gotta direct me back first to finish the story about how my kid was born while we were in Japan with Green Day. So I'll just okay. finish oh, that story sorry, real okay. quick. Okay. Yeah, because I'm oh, going sorry. like, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I'm probably an undiagnosed attention deficit disorder because I'm listening to myself <laughs> talk right now and I'm either like nervous or I drank too much coffee or I'm just fucking going off in a hundred different directions. But anyway... The, yeah, um, no, no, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Take us back to that one. Go on. So, so we were in New, we were in Tokyo doing two nights with Green Day, and then there was there was a day off the next day, and then one more show, and then we were gonna the, the, there was one more show of the tour, and then we were gonna come home and literally take like a year off from touring, and just like we were gonna get a rehearsal space, and just little by little start writing our next record, and just kind of go back to just being a band but sleeping in our own beds, like kind of how like it was when we first started. That was our plan. You know, we were like, right. okay, well, Marco's having a kid. Kenny just had a kid. Um, you know, we've been touring nonstop. This is going to be, we're about to make our third record. So let's go home. And like, I feel like we've got a really good foothold, like foothold in our fan base now that I don't feel like people are going to forget about us if we go away for a year and just make like what we think should be the best record of our you know so far and so that was kind of what our plan was and we were over there you know doing this like amazing thing where you just like i can't i mean japan in and of itself is is just life-changing it's such an amazing place you should definitely go there if you haven't been there but we're in tokyo two nights in a row opening for green day in this fucking crazy sold out you know uh stadium and i get this we're out at this bar like Again, I was sharing a hotel room with our singer, Tim, and I, got, I think I got out of the shower and he's just lying on his bed, like 
with his socks on, checking his fucking, you know, watching some stupid fucking thing on his computer, like probably looking at some YouTube video or some like Pro Tools tutorial because he's obsessed with recording. And I'm just like, bro, we're in fucking Tokyo and we just opened for Green Day. What the fuck are we doing in this hotel room? Like, and we kind of went like, you're right, let's rally. And we like got all dressed up and we're like, fuck it. And we call all the other guys, got everyone. And we're like, all right, we're going out. And there's this club we hang out at in Tokyo called the New Lex. And we all went there and all the bands hang out there that are in town. And we're, we're just raging. And it's this loud bar and there's like hot chicks everywhere. And it's just like raging, loud, just drinks, you know, flowing and the whole thing. And I get this like, and I think Avril Lavigne somehow, like her band was around and they were all like talking to us and like trying to get us to go to the bar they were at. It was just some ridiculous situation. We're like, this is crazy. We're just a little band from Santa Barbara. And here we are in Tokyo talking to all these fucking people, and all these big bands and we're raging. And then I get a tap on my shoulder and it was literally someone handing me some Japanese guy and he hands me a note that says, call your wife. And I'm like, what? Oh, I'm like, what the yeah. fuck? You know, I mean, like in the, you know, in a whole different time zone and a whole different thing. And I was like, what do you mean? And then, then they come back to me and they're like, okay, like person, like the person who help, helps us out in Japan, like our Japanese record company representative was basically like calling all the different clubs, trying to track me down and like talking to them in Japanese. And she like figured out that we were there talked to the bar manager, had him find me, you know, and give me this note. So I'm like, next thing you know, it's like, I'm in this tiny little office in the, in this, you know, in the production office of this club in Tokyo. And I'm like making this long distance call because we didn't have like our iPhones then or anything. This is back in the 1970s. Um, but uh, <laughs> I mean, even just, it was just like literally like 13, 14 years ago. So it wasn't common to have like, yeah. you know, your phone with you when you were in Japan. You're basically like, you know, unreachable. And um, and so I'm calling home and she's like, yeah, um, I'm in the hospital right now and this baby's going to be born like three weeks early. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know? So I'm like, uh -huh. I got to get home. Like, what the fuck? And I tried to figure out a way to get home, like looking for flights and there was nothing like that could get me home in time. And so like I had to give up that last show opening for Green Day um, and have just the band play as a three piece. It's the only show I've ever missed in my life, actually. Okay. Um, okay. Actually, no, wait, I, I, uh, I'm lying. I, I missed another show when my second kid was born. I only have two kids and both of them caused me to miss the only shows that I've ever missed. Right. So the only I'd, reason I've ever missed I'd a say show. It's a fair excuse. It's a fair excuse. To yeah. Me. There you go. Yeah. Only, only shows I ever missed in my life were because of childbirth. But anyway, for the, for the Japan one, I literally like, you know, just like disappeared and just jumped on a plane and, and got home. And the kid was born when I was still at the airport in Japan. So I called home and found out this kid was born. Actually, how about this one? Named him London because we love London so much. So there you go. Oh, really? You, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Which, of course, to your to the to the Geordie guy, um, of course, my wife's family was like, you <laughs> You're naming him London, <laughs> you know, like they're like rival <laughs> soccer teams and everything. And I'm like, ah, oh, sorry, bro. I just really like London, you know. <laughs> thought it sounded like a cool name, but you know, Jordy and yeah. calling him like Jordy or or you know, what were we gonna call him? We're gonna call him Gray Street? What are we supposed to call him? Um, you know, so St. James. I wonder I if that's where. <laughs> I wonder if that's where Tony Lovato got the idea for, because that's what he called his his kid as well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, my theory is that all those other dudes that are a couple years younger than Sugar Cult, like uh, 
Mess and Simple Plant, <laughs> they all named their kids London after my name, after my kid named London. So, yeah, they That's actually cool. it's funny. Those guys like called, they texted me. They're like, dude, I really like that name. Was it going to be weird if we name our kid that? I'm like, I don't give a fuck, you know? <laughs> um, actually, Slash from Guns N' Roses, his son is named London too. So, I don't know. Everyone in a band named, right. seems to name their kid London. So, I guess that's what's going on. So, yeah, so fucking crazy story. You had to come home from the Green Day tour early, and that was that. And um, and then you wanted to know about Blink-182, how that happened? Oh, yes, please. So we didn't really have anything on the books for a while, and we get this random call. We were just kind of about to exhale and take a little bit of a breather for the holidays, and we get this call from our managers, and they're like, all right, so check it out, dude. You got an offer to, to go... Um, open for Blink-182 um, in Northern Europe and the UK um, because they need, a, they, like, literally you leave in, like, a week, you know, because they, oh, wow. I guess they had Death Cab for Cutie lined up. Um, they had Death Cab for Cutie lined up to open, and, um, and Ben, the singer of Death Cab, had gotten, like, something fucked up with his throat. Like, I don't know if he had, like, needed to have surgery or if he had just, like, lost his voice, you know, had like strep throat or something like that. But basically he lost his voice and he had to like last minute, they had to drop out of the tour. So we basically replaced death cab because <laughs> it's like, listen to death cab and listen to sugar calls. Like, well, if you can't get death cab for cutie, you can get sugar calls. Like we sound nothing alike. Um, yeah. Well, but it's kind of weird that death cab are on a blink blink show right that that doesn't really i mean i guess but i know the me. guys in like i mean the guys in blink love death cab and love all that kind of you know stuff probably more than i mean i don't want to speak for them but probably to be honest because back then on that tour like me and mark really hit it off and we would like sit there like you know stealing music from each you know loading each other's ipods this is telling you what year it was because yeah. we, were, we, we were listening to music on right, ipods right. But like we would like sit there like, you know, trading music on our iPods. Like, oh, dude, you got to get all this. Oh, cool. Fucking just drop me the whole thing. Okay, cool. You know, and most of the shit he was listening to was like really cool indie stuff. And, you know, it wasn't like he was like, dude, you should listen to Newfound Glory and Mest. You know, he was like, he was into really like, <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, which you find with most stuff. to be the honest. self-titled and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. And actually, he had a real kinship with me because I have this. I don't know if you, if you guys know this, but. I've always had this sort of like um, mistress of a music, sort of a musical affair that I've I did in parallel with Sugar Call. Like this Sugar Call, I I started with in 1999, and then I had this other project that started in about 2000 called Bad Astronaut, which is um, a yeah, band with the singer Kate. of with Joey Kate from Lagwagon. Yeah. yeah, so it was because we're all from the same hometown. We're all from Santa Barbara, and it's a really small small town, so everyone knows each other from growing up. And like Joey was like in our town, he was like the cool, like, you know, he was like quite a bit older than all of us, but he was like cool and like hung out around like the people in the younger bands. And he had like the better gear and the, and knew how to work a, you know, knew how to record. And so he was just kind of this, this cool older, kind of like cool rock and roll older brother that we all had. And so Joey and I ended up starting this project called Bad Astronaut with our old friend yeah. Derek. Um, who was the original drummer of Lagwagon and who I had actually grown up with. We like lived, lived in the same neighborhood, went to the same schools. So it was a really, um, you know, tale of a small town kind of thing. Like, 
Um, but so we had Bad Astronaut and that was uh, something that was just a project. We never intended to play shows or really market ourselves as a band. We were just like, hey, let's just kind of do this to keep ourselves sort of just to like keep ourselves back in touch with the original, you know, just the sort of spirit of just like getting together and making up songs and then going in the studio and and fucking around and just using uh, just as an outlet for stuff that wasn't appropriate for our other projects, you know. And that's what happened. And but but the weird thing is about that astronaut kind of created it kind of gained like a weird like and fat records put it out so that it got good just you know it got good distribution like people heard it around the world and it kind of got this weird thing it's like weird when you don't promote something what it does is it kind of promotes itself by like people it, it gets this mystique and then people start to like trade it like a secret you know and tell their friends about it and somehow the guys in blink who they were always fans of Lagwagon, but they really got enamored with the second bad astronaut record which is called houston okay cool. uh, houston we have a drinking problem and they actually like yeah said it was one of the biggest influences on their self-titled album so you go back and listen to that album they did a lot of experimentation in the studio and you know so it was kind of cool i actually went and visited them oh, wow. tim and i went and visited blink in the studio um while they were making that self-titled record because they were doing it at a they rented oh, okay. a house out in san diego and we were down there and they invited yeah, us yeah so we're like let's fucking go and and it was a trip but like mark was wearing a bad astronaut shirt and they kept talking about that i was like <laughs> fuck man <laughs> so it was cool, cool. so we really connected suppose... yeah no go for it i'll never stop come... talking yeah <laughs> i was gonna say it's, it, I, I mean maybe we'll come to this a bit later but it's come kind of full circle now hasn't it with uh, obviously tim wrote some songs on their latest record didn't he so crazy such a trip man yeah, yeah like right and that was i mean it was it kind of happened really last minute but like all of a sudden tim is um yeah and he was like it was really weird because he got the gig it wasn't like hey here's the guy from sugar cult let's put him in the room with blink it was because tim in his own right has now become like a really successful producer I know. he produced neon yeah. trees walk the moon um yeah. all these big things and so, so basically, you know, every, every band wants to get in the room with him now. And it was funny. It was an awkward situation for him. Cause he was kind of like, shit, man, I don't know if they're going to remember me from sugar cult. And if they think they're going right. in the studio with this like hot new rock producer, who's like getting the hits on the radio, you know, that might be the draw. He's like, he was in this awkward situation where he didn't really want to, until they really like started working he didn't really want to remind them, by the way, I know you guys already because we toured like another lifetime ago, <laughs> you know? So it was a weird thing. I was like, I was like, dude, are you going to like, at some point you got to tell them because it's going to be really awkward if they find out and then you didn't say something, they're going to yeah. be like, wait a minute. And he's like, I know, but I just, I didn't want them to be like, oh, we don't want to work with him. He was in Sugar Call. <laughs> Instead, they were like stoked. They were like, dude, of course we know you're in Sugar Call. We love Sugar Call. So it was like it was yeah. how many shows yeah. did, how many shows did you actually done with Well them? we had played with Blink uh originally we played with them we did a small run with them like in when we first first ever started touring in 2001 somehow we got like the sort of lucky break to like be the band that played like it wasn't even like opening on the same stage we were like the band playing like next to the merch area like outside while the, while Blink was playing inside, you know, so it was kind of like that, like us and Mest were the two like 
bands you could see while you got if you got to the show early you know we're like pre-gaming you know but we got to like you know for all intents and purposes we got to say we were opening for blink at that time so that was back in 2001 and then this was back yeah. this was in 2004 this was a couple years later and we're in england doing the you know basically filling in for death cab and we did about i think it was about like i don't remember it was probably like a week and a half you know it's probably a good 10 day run and it was it was a trip because when we left on the tour it was like okay here's the thing guys you know because by then we were already like got to the point where we could tour we could do headlining tours and we could tour pretty comfortably with a crew and a bus and everything and the you know the financial reality of that tour was it was basically going to be a money loop it wasn't going to make us money which is you know it was like okay the, their budget's not very big for the opening band um, so we just ended up again, going back to the roots, going back to being scrappy. We're like, okay, well, let's make it work. Um, we paired our crew down, only brought like, you know, two guys with us and we shared, we talked, we found out the, the opening, opening band, the band that was going to play before us was a band that somehow Travis was connected to called the Kinnison and we con- contacted yeah, their people. That. Yeah. Yeah. And we ended up like working it out so we could share a bus with them. So that cut the cost of that in half. We used like frequent flyer miles to get over there, to fly over there, you know, so we had accumulated enough frequent flyer miles for, uh, to be able to fly for free. And then, um, I mean, we just, we just took, you know, trimmed wherever we could to make it work. So we wouldn't like, so it wouldn't cost us money. So it was basically like breaking even, you know, but I will say when we got there, like originally it was like, okay, you know, you, you guys are on your own for, for food and all that kind of stuff. The day we got there, we got such the warm welcome. Like Blink was like, by the way, our catering is your catering, anything you guys want. So they had their own personal chef, you know, like there's all this whole, like basically a traveling restaurant going with them. So like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, gourmet food taken care of. They'd give us their alcohol Everyone in the band was like super cool to us. Their tour manager was a guy I had um, met before um, who also works with the Foo Fighters. And one of my good friends I grew up with plays in the Foo Fighters. So it was like he saw us and was like taking care of us. So it was just one of those things. Again, like anything oh, in life, if you just go for it, it'll usually work out. You know, I don't think there's many times in life where you've gone, where, you, where I can think of where I'm like, oh, I've gone for something and then. I ended up coming home empty-handed. Usually it works out. And in this case, it worked out again. We were like, we had a great time. We quadrupled our fan base over there because getting to open for Blink is a pretty big honor in that genre, you know? Yeah. And, but I will say, it was, it was a trip, man, because I, I don't know if you guys remember this stuff, but like right after that tour, like maybe a month or two after that tour, they came home and announced that they were breaking up. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Just that was the last tour they did, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then, then did, and obviously they did. You, you see know, the, and, and, Could you see that the the sort of cracks between them with that happening? Or was, dude, as far as you were concerned, so much, it seemed cool. So much. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And and we we had never toured with a band at that level before, so we didn't know that that wasn't normal. But we were like, in retrospect, we were like, okay, wait a minute here. Travis had his own dressing room and his own crew. Mark had his own dressing yeah. room and his own crew. Tom had his own dressing room and his own crew. They each had their own bus. Like, literally, we, in retrospect, we're like, 
dude, is it just me? Or did you ever see those guys ever in the same place at the same time? And we were like, no. The only time they were ever together was on stage. Even when they were yeah. eating dinner, yeah. it was like one guy at one table in that corner, another guy at that table way over there in that corner. Like, oh, wow. basically, yeah. they just, I suppose, yeah, it was totally separate. I suppose when you get out, I suppose when you get out there and see that, you realize uh, why there's such a small budget for the support. Band. Right, because so essentially, the like, they're a one, one three-piece band, but it's like, it's like having three headlining <laughs> yeah. bands on one tour, yeah, because they were all doing everything separate. <laughs> It was weird, and and individually, like he'd go hang with Travis, and it was like he had his whole posse with them, all these cool people, and you're like, it was awesome. Then you go into Tom's thing, and he had his whole lifestyle and the way it was for him, great hang. Then you go hang out with Mark, super, you know, super fun. Got to meet Robert Smith from The Cure, that was so awesome. Like he's just oh, hanging wow. out, and drinking a bottle of wine with us. Oh wow! And like, but so individually, oh, they were all wonderful guys. But you never, it was never, I don't have one memory where all of us were like hanging with Blink. It was like, you're either hanging with Mark right. or you're hanging yeah. with Tom or you're hanging with Travis. You know, that's how it was back then. <laughs> right. So now Tim gets to work with them and he, he co-writes um, a couple songs on their new album. Um, and, he, you know, of course, yeah. you know, he's like, you know, reporting back to me. He's like, oh, dude, it's gnarly. And the things he says, he's like, I mean, here's Blink years and years later. And he's like, man it's such a trip. Like they're just such down to earth dudes. And, and he's like, Travis, you know, really is kind of like runs the show. Like he's just like super way more involved than you would think when you think of a drummer, you know, like he's the one who makes okay. the phone call and he's the one who brings the start of an idea. And then also like to Travis's credit, like, I don't know if I'm saying stuff that's supposed to be in the inner circle, but like, like literally Tim said, like you literally like you hang out with that guy for like 10 hours and there is never a time he is not working. Like he is constantly doing drills with his like, you know, practice pad or he's on the phone making yeah. deals or he's I mean, that guy is just like, you know, a machine. And then as soon as they're done, he's like, I'll, I'll spend eight hours with that guy you know and he's working the whole time and then he'll be like okay i gotta go now because i'm going to this other studio to do a feature on some like on like the machine gun kelly record or something like that like he just never stops that guy is yeah, just like yeah. a machine yeah yeah it's a trip but and then matt skiba of course is an old a pal of ours too from uh you know we we were i think we were on the warp tour with alkaline trio and i've known him socially for years such a wonderful guy okay. you know so yeah, like you he's know, lived in la for some time yeah. right Yes, we actually used to live in the same neighborhood for a while. It's funny because we, oh, right. we lived okay. in the same neighborhood for about four years. And maybe in the last like two months of me living in that neighborhood, we realized we were in the same neighborhood, you know, because that's the weird thing about okay. being in bands and being in L.A. Everyone's like you live here, but everyone's it's, it's rare that everyone's ever home, you know, because they're always like, you know, leaving or coming or going, you know, of course. Of course, but yeah. it's more like instead of saying, where do you live? You should say, where do you keep your stuff? You know. <laughs> So. <laughs> cool well let's i guess let's go back to see how deep we can go into that that marco hard drive anyway and tim you know talk about santa Barbara and um kind of the you know the the bad astronaut days well when did that kind of transition into sugar cult and that where i guess when did that how what was that transition like in terms of the local santa Barbara scene for sugar cult into i guess i guess the, the well the world stage i guess really I was just going to say, just just to, just to add on to Nick's question, because obviously you, you've had spells in in, our, in other bands like 
the Ataris, Nerf Herder, like with the. That's right. This was all before. This was all before Sugar Cult, presumably. Yes. So you guys did your research. I, I dig it. Um, so I mean, again, going back to what I was saying, you know, coming from Santa Barbara, which is a pretty small town, and you all grew up together, and you know, there's there's just there's it's not a big enough place to have different people from you know it's not like each age group gets their own scene it's like you're all just kind of like if you're like a you know punk rock weirdo you get thrown in the same heap as as the metal kids and the skater kids and the girls that you know the the girls that want to be like fashion designers or like i mean you just use all the like weird artsy weirdos and outsiders kind of end up getting it, you know, hanging out together and get to know each other. It's not like you're limited to who you go to school with, because basically right, right. you all end up kind of like finding each other at the weird little shows or at the weird little record store. Um, and that's just kind of what happens. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. You don't realize it. You take it for granted when you're a kid because you just figure, you know, like any kid, you figure your life is probably the same as everybody else's life. And then you, it's not until you grow up and start traveling around the world and you go, oh, shit, man, we had something really special. This is not a usual situation, you know, and Santa Barbara is just a little town. It's not it's you know, it's a beautiful place, but it's not like the hotbed of musical success. However, right. it's about 100 miles away from L.A., which would be more, you know, um, appropriately um stereotyped as a place you go if you're trying to make it right so you know yeah yeah so la is really the you know it's kind of the heart of the music business and all that kind of stuff but in santa barbara it's very different than la so most of the people in santa barbara unless you're if you're super serious about music you're eventually going to move to la most people in santa barbara are just kind of doing it because it's fun and honestly because it's kind of like sleepy there's not much else going on so you just end up making up songs with your friends and and so we all got started pretty young and there was a lot of um let's see like i, I was in a band in high school then i was in another band called popsico that i thought was going to be the band that would pull something off and then our singer unfortunately um got really involved in drugs and ended up dying like right before we were about to put our first record out so that was kind of i had some a few false starts you know so i was a little bit of a late bloomer when it came to sugar cult but before that, after Popsico, I was kind of like me and Joey Cape had a little record label for a while. Um, I was kind of bopping around trying to start other bands and nothing really seemed to catch. And then this kid moved to town from the Midwest and that was Chris Rowe. So this is like the Atari's right, right. first record anywhere but here. Um, it's a great, the Atari's, I mean, you should talk to Chris Rowe if you haven't already. He, his story is incredible. It's just so fucking like this is just not supposed to happen that way. Um, <laughs> like literally the guy, yeah, I can put you in touch with Chris. He's a great, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a very idiosyncratic, um, interesting, but totally lovable dude, you know? Um, but yeah. he's, oh, so, uh, I mean, so still along, friends with him to this day. Yeah. 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 I know Chris. Um, he's actually shit. You just remind me he's playing tonight in LA. So, um, okay. now I'm going to, I have to either go to the show or find some way to weasel out of it. So no, it'll be it'd, it'd be nice <laughs> to see him. He's he's really good. I mean, he's a fucking freak. He plays his guitar upside down. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that. Yeah, no. Like, 
that should tell you something about Chris Rowe. That pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Chris Rowe. <laughs> like he literally <laughs> told me the story. I was like, dude, how the fuck did that happen? And he's all, well, when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with Kiss, and I my parents got me like a you know toy guitar or whatever. And he's like, and I held it up to the TV to match Ace Frehley's guitar, and then I just grabbed it and started learning how to play it. So of course you hold up a guitar to a TV, it's going to be the opposite orientation of how it's supposed to be so he plays a right-handed guitar left-handed so if you for anyone listening out there if you play guitar like the high e string is on is on top and the low e string is on the bottom so he's essentially playing backwards you know so fucking weird but somehow his brain works that way it was a pain in the ass to be in a band with him because at the time i was playing bass and i was trying to follow him and i was like normally you just look at someone's index finger and kind of go okay i get Course. And I was trying to figure out the songs. I was like, dude, this is fucking crazy. It's like, it's like a, you know, it's a total mind fuck. But, um, but anyways, he moved to town. His story is great. Like I said, I mean, long story short for Chris, he was a, a teenager in a shitty little town in the middle of nowhere. And he would drive to wherever he had to go to see shows. And he went and saw the Vandals and he would always, he was that kid. Whenever he'd go to a show, he'd bring like a, demo tape he made on his four track of his own stuff and he didn't want to call it chris rowe so he just called it the atari so it would seem like it was a band and he handed it to the vandals and of course you usually hand those things to bands and they just like you know get rid of them or don't even leave them leave them in the dressing room i would always take them and put them on our merch table like a couple towns over so at least we could spread the the music out to other okay. people you know but most bands don't have time to listen to that stuff well, it turns out the Vandals were actually starting, the, the guy from the Vandals, Joe, was starting a label. So he was actually listening to all the Fu, music. Yeah. Everything he found on tour, he, he was listening to, and he listened to Chris, and he was like, holy shit, this guy's fucking good. He's only like 16, and he's this good. So he, I mean, he called Chris, and Chris thought it was his friend prank calling him. That classic story, like he hung up on him. He's like, dude, fuck you. And he hung up. He thought it was like his buddy, like, hey, it's guy from the Vandals, want to be on my label? You know, and he's like, fuck you. Hung up. And the guy calls him back. He's like, no, seriously, I'm the guy from the Vandals. Anyway, long story short, he has to come clean and tell the guy, look, by the way, I'm not really, we're not really a band. I'm just a dude. And so the guy in the Vandals was like, well, let me put you together with some people. And he knew our friend Derek, who ended up being a bad astronaut, who I actually grew up in the same neighborhood as and was in my first band ever. And so he, Derek had been, um, had left Lagwagon, so he was available. And so Derek flew out to the Midwest and basically like lived out there so he could play, form this band, the Ataris. Well, eventually Derek got tired of it. He's like, dude, fuck this shit. We made this record. I love your songs, but if you want to keep playing with me, you got to follow me out to Santa Barbara because I'm moving back to Santa Barbara. So Chris was like, all right. And he just literally, again, same spirit that we were talking about where you just fucking don't overthink it. He like literally like packed a fucking backpack, grabbed his guitar and just went to Santa Barbara and like started dating some chick and lived with her, you know, just so he could, and he just didn't overthink it. He just like literally moved to Santa Barbara. I met him in Santa Barbara the day he got there. I found there was a punk rock show in the park and and he comes up to me talking a mile a minute. Hey, dude, so I got a bunch of songs and we got a record coming out. We got a tour coming up soon. And uh, Derek said, you're a pretty cool guy. So do you want to play? And I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, I was like, again, I'm like, fuck <laughs> it. Sure. You know, like, and next thing you know, we're, we're a band. And 
and we're traveling around. But this is like, this isn't the Ataris that you guys know. This isn't the Ataris that had like the hit song on the radio and the, you know, packed shows all over the place. This is when the Ataris were just on their first record. So we were like broke as a joke, touring around in a shitty, like beaten down van, like living on like, you know, sharing a fucking burrito and like sleep. We would, you know, we were doing the thing where we'd like play a song and be like, all right, this is our last song. If anyone has a place for us to sleep, um, come see us at our merch table after the show. And I, we were like literally sleeping on random people's floors. And, um, and so that was it. And so I got to play in the Ataris, but eventually I quit the Ataris because the Swingin' Utters asked me, um, this other punk oh, band yeah. called the Swingin' yeah, Utters. Them, yeah. yeah, I had yeah. met them and they, they had told me they, you know, I basically said to them like, dude, if you ever need someone to, you know, play i'd love to play with you guys and they called me up and while i was on tour with the ataris and um and i for reasons that i don't know i mean i guess you everyone knows now that derek from bad astronaut and Lagwagon and the ataris like is now dead he 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 was like he became a terrible drug addict and eventually committed yeah. suicide which is really sad but um yeah, he he was someone i grew up with and here i am in a band with him like you know, we're scraping fucking five dollars together so we could share a fucking Taco Bell order. And I'm just going, you know what? Meanwhile, Derek's like running off and like scoring drugs. And I was like, I can't be in this band watching like some kid who I one of the most talented, intelligent people I've ever known in my life. Like literally, he was like the star of our neighborhood. He's like the best skater, the best surfer, the best, you know, best looking guy the coolest guy, the smartest guy, like just the, that star kid. You all know that kid who like, you teach him how to play guitar and a week later he's better than you on guitar. Like he was just that guy and I'm watching him just like destroy himself, you know? So it was like, I had to kind of get out of that situation and the Swingin' Utters offered me to, they're like, dude, we're leaving for a two month tour in Europe opening for No Use For Name. You want to play bass? And I was like, fuck yes. And I literally... Yeah, yeah. Finished the Atari's tour in San Francisco, had them drop me off at the Swingin' Utters house. And two days later, I was on a plane to Europe and we toured. We played 48 shows in 50 days, sharing a tour bus with No Use for Name. No Use as guitar player at the time is my buddy Chris Shiflett, who's now the guitarist of the Foo Fighters for the last 20 years. And Chris and I had also played in a band together while we were in high school and were like, you know, friends ever since childhood. So it was such a trip, man, to be like, you know, um, in Europe, traveling, we played so many shows in your country, man. We played like probably like fucking 10 shows in the UK. You know, we played everywhere. Really? Um, we went to, we actually went to a, a London, Dar- uh, London Derby, Derby, you call it? Derby? The, uh, uh, where oh, it was like. Arsenal, Arsenal was- Tottenham. Yeah, it was it was an Arsenal Tottenham game. I remember us going to that. Yeah. Um, that was so fun. So I got this like, I'd played in local bands for a while, and here I am like I'd gotten a little bit of touring experience with the Ataris, and then just fucking drew the card where suddenly I'm on tour playing like raging punk shows all over England and the UK. I mean, it's all, all over England and, yeah. and Europe, and dude, it was like that was like fucking grad school for me. You know, I was like, this is like, A, you kind of go, okay. I mean, granted, we were not touring in a very fancy way. We were touring very punk rock, you know, um, playing yeah. little little dives and, t- you know, taking shower and 
taking showers like every five days in like the dirtiest, like you, you went in the shower and came out dirtier than you were before you went in, you know, like some of the showers in these dressing rooms at some of these punk clubs, you know, you're like, I think I just like literally was like standing like ankle deep in like black fungus, but it's cool. I took a shower, you know, so it was like punk rock grad school. And I just like from that tour, it was so fun. And from that tour, that's where I really went. Like, this is what I have to fucking do. I love this. Like, this is to some people, this might be like hell. But to me, this is fucking my dream, you know. And um, yeah, but I loved everything about it. But at the end of the tour, we had made no money. So I was gone for, you know, was gone for fucking two months, came home like with no money. And it was like, shit, I, I don't think this is sustainable. I don't know if I can just move to San Francisco and play in this band. It's not making any money. The band had already, Swing and Utters had already been like, they were already like legends. So I like, I sort of felt like this weird like interloper. Like I was like, this is really fun. I'm getting the experience, but I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I deserve it. Or I don't feel like I, I won't say I don't deserve it because I've been playing in bands since I was a kid, but I just don't feel like I've earned this. I, I would like to have this, but in a way where, where I was part of building it. I didn't just jump on it while it was already moving, right? I see. So yeah, yeah. a year later, um, I got the same opportunity with Nerf Herder. And Nerf Herder was a band who from our hometown, and I knew them very well and grown up with their drummer. And, um, and they basically said, I was actually instrumental in helping them become a successful band. Like they were the first band we ever put out on me and Joey's indie label. So I knew Nerfurter well, and they, they were like, dude, we just lost our bass player. Would you want to fill in? And I was like, sure. And I went, and again, it was it sort of like confirmed to me, this is fun, but at the same time, uh, this is not my, this is not my baby. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having fun, yeah. like, like I'm the cool uncle to someone else's baby, but I, but I want my own baby, you know? And then, so I kind of came home from that, and I just had this like realization. I was like, I really love playing music. I have a lot of professional, like semi-professional experience now, and I would like to either just do this on a giant level, like join a big giant band like Weezer or fucking, you know, whatever, or I'm going to um, just try something else, you know, because I've been doing this my whole fucking life, and maybe I should just become a grown-up, you know? Just at that time, I meet Tim, and we just hit it off, like, you know, we like total bromance, you know, like where we're like just finishing each other's sentences about the stuff we think is cool. Just just getting along as people talking about music. And one day he's just like, dude, fuck, I wish I would have met you before I would have got this guy to play bass because um, because I just feel like you and me just see eye to eye about music so much more. And, you know, he had already found Aaron and I was like, well, it's cool, dude. Well, let me know if it ever doesn't work out. And then one day he calls me up a couple months later and goes, dude, so would you ever want to try playing guitar? And the funny thing is I had been, I'd started out on guitar like when I was first, like my first band ever, I was a guitarist. And then I switched to bass and was mostly a bass player. So it was like, for me, it was like the perfect thing where I was like, you know what, this will be super fun. I get to play guitar, hang out with this guy that I, that I really get along with and um just do this kind of for fun and you know no pressure you know it's just a local band we'll just do it for fun and it'll, if nothing else i'll just give me an excuse to get better at guitar 
the rest yeah. is history, right? You know, yeah, that was right. it. Like yeah. when you look, you know, the moral of the story, kids, is, you know, I'll go back to my dad mode. So the moral of the story, young children, is no one ever gets laid if they go out looking to get laid. <laughs> if you try too hard, it's not going to fucking happen. You got to just do it for the love and just go for it. And then shit's going to work out. If you try too hard and you plan too much, you, you take away that element of surprise, you know, and you kind of end up pushing and pushing this things that are, you know, supposed to come your way. You kind of push them away. But if you just kind of go for it and do it and don't overthink it, it's amazing how stuff just fucking lines up. So I guess how did I guess what it just went from there and it just just snowballed? Did um, it did? It snowballed. It never stopped. It was like from the fucking yeah. first day we started practicing. It was like I mean we you know we were we weren't that fucking great. We were we were like constantly just in this mode of like feeling like you know who do we think we are to even you know we always had this thing like where where we felt like we um this is really inappropriate but i I must use the example of like the super fat ugly girl who like is the best kisser because she's got to make up for the inferiority complex she has you know and then the super hot girl is usually a fucking train wreck because they've been able to get by on being hot their whole life and they've never had to actually do any work to get to become a better person you know what I mean? It's a terrible fucking thing to say. But that was kind of our thing. Like, we felt like, God, we're, we're not very good musicians. We're trying to write good songs, but we don't really know how. So we just ended up, like, working, you know, twice as hard as we probably, as most bands were working. You know, like, if the band next to us in this rehearsal space was practicing for two hours, we'd practice for four hours. If they went through their set once and then went and had some beers, we went through our set fucking four times, you know, once without vocals, once with only bass and drums, another time where we'd record it and then listen to it and take notes on it and go back and like our drummer would fucking like, I mean, we, we, we got to, it was like military. We were so fucking fierce about trying to get good because we were so frustrated with the fact that we didn't feel like we were that great. And then we would like, finish practicing and then you know go out to bars and clubs and hang out and like go see other bands play and you know make friends with people and you know we made shirts the sugar cult shirts and we basically give them to like the hottest girls we could find and say wear these around town you know because like, basically like our thought process was that like guys would see them walking down the street and then see us advertise and then want to come see our show you know we basically did everything we could and the show's just got better and better and better and eventually we were like one of the biggest bands in our hometown and by then we started like driving 100 miles down and playing in LA and um and you know I was kind of tapping into the experience I had from touring with the Ataris and I was like you guys we should try and get a show up in San Francisco we should try and get a show down in San Diego like let's expand and we just kept doing that as much as possible and then little by little like record companies started getting interested in us we got a manager you know, the same old story, like, you know, if you keep doing it, eventually, if you keep doing it for the right reasons, and you keep trying your best, um, and you keep kind of overcompensating by trying to be like, okay, let's play every show like it's the last time we're ever going to play, there, there's a certain ethic to that, 
But there was also a certain reality that where we like almost sincerely believed, oh shit, this is probably the last time we're ever going to get to play this place. So we literally were playing it as though it was the last show on earth, you know? And, and I think when you do that, you just drain your reserves and you give it your fucking full hundred percent every time. Eventually that starts to like get out to people and they go, dude, those guys are fucking, those guys put on a great show or those guys work really hard. Or those guys fucking, you know, those guys rock, whatever the fuck. Right. You know? And we, you know, meanwhile, we're getting better at writing songs and, and just better at being a band and better, at, um, you know, the whole thing. And eventually we got, we got a record contract and went to the studio, made our first record. And we got a really lucky break because our manager managed a band called 311. And so they were going to be a main stage band on the Warp Tour in 2001. And so he kind of just pitched it to the guy from the Warp Tour, Kevin Lyman, and said, hey, I've got this new band I'm working yeah. with called Sugar Cult. Their record doesn't come out till the end of the summer, but would you mind throwing them a bone? And, and he gave us like a week of shows. And then while we were on that tour, we were just, again, the same thing. We played, we were like, same attitude where we were like, okay, this is probably the only week we're ever going to get to play the Warp Tour. So let's make it like, let's play these shows and let's take advantage of this opportunity and play these shows like our life depends on them and you know work the crowd instead of just sitting around drinking beer we were like out there handing out stickers and free cds to everybody we could find and making friends with all the people in the bands making friends with all the crew and basically the guy from the warp tour came back to us and he's like dude everyone's loving your band and everyone you know all the word on the street is that you guys are really nice guys and um the kids are really loving your shows. You're getting really good feedback. So we'd like to offer you the whole tour. So we ended up getting the whole rest nice. of the tour. And that really was probably the catalyst that made Sugar Cult Sugar Cult. Because to be totally honest with you, like we didn't think when we formed our band that we were forming a pop punk band or that we were forming a emo band or any shit like that. Like we hadn't, we didn't even know that that was possible. Like I thought when I was in the Ataris, I thought that was a pop punk band. And when I started Sugar Cult, I thought, okay, this is this is going to be like a band like, you know, the Foo Fighters or fucking just just this is going to be just a rock band that probably will hopefully one day get on the radio, you know. But we didn't think we were like part of a scene. We, I mean, honestly, we we really didn't. I mean, our original model, our original sort of like, you know, recipe was like early Elvis Costello, another one of your boys. England early Elvis Costello yep. you know meets yep. Nirvana so we were like let's take our Nirvana <laughs> CD and made it with our used copy of uh this year's model by Elvis Costello which is why we used to cover the song no action and basically put him in a blender and pour it out through a fucking Green Day and uh you know Jimmy World you know um filter and it'll come out as sugar cult. That was kind of our, you know, that was kind of our original recipe. And then what happened was we did the Warp Tour and all these bands were loving it. And, and suddenly Newfound Glory and Sum 41 and Good Charlotte and Blink, and all these bands that were sort of emerged at that time. Yeah. They, they went, they kind of became our pals. And they were like, hey, you want to get, you guys, when the Warp Tour is over, you want to open for us in the winter? We're going to go do a tour. And we started just getting on tour with all those bands. And yeah, yeah. next thing you know, people are calling us, you know, oh, Sugar Cult's part of this whole early 2000s pop punk emo explosion. And and we were just like, 
all right, guys, just shut your fucking mouth and keep playing, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we were like, I'm not going to say we are or we aren't, but if you guys are coming to our shows and you're digging it, then fuck yeah. But I will say the one thing we made a conscious effort, and you guys can see this if you go back and look at Sugar Cult pictures, you will never find a picture of Sugar Cult where we're wearing blue jeans on stage. You'll never find a picture of Sugar Cult where we're wearing shorts on stage. And you'll be, <laughs> yes. you have to look pretty hard to find a picture of one of us wearing like a band shirt. Maybe our bass player would wear them every once in a while, you know. And so, so we had a real yeah. strict code where we were like, we, we don't want to just be another band that fits in. Like, there got to be a point in like alternative in press magazine. Dickie Shorts, Atticus t-shirt, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'm like, we're not fucking, I told the guys too. I was like, you can give us a fucking Atticus shirt, but I'm not going to wear it on stage because we just wanted <laughs> to have like, yeah, not because we thought we were better than anybody else, but we just had this model of our band where we were like, and I think, I don't know how we had this instinct, but I really like felt, me and our singer felt really strongly about um, having our band be a band that was not going to go down with the ship. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. Like we didn't want to be so intertwined with a certain trend and a fashion look and a movement with the, you know, whatever the swooped hairdo and the fucking Atticus shirt and all. We were like, be careful. You know, I had Tim on another podcast recently talk about during that time, how you guys would take, would get Dickie's trousers and then take them to get tailored to make them look skinny, you know, which would have been the opposite of what everyone was doing at that time. Right. No, for sure. We, we would, but, but again, you know, I'd like to say we were original, but we were just trying to rip off the clash. Like to us, like our fashion right, icons were the, you know, again, your boys, I'm telling you, sugar cult, like we actually had a lot of kids that thought we were from England. Cause if you look at like the stuck in America video, we're wearing like three button um, suit jackets that are, you know, because yeah, of the yeah. fucking Beatles, we're wearing creepers because of the, the clash and the sex pistols. You know, we're just a bunch of fucking, you know, you know, we, we studied rock, like we, you know, it's like anyone, you look at a fucking picture. I mean, dude, who doesn't look at a picture of the clash when you're walking by a newsstand and you see like a Mojo magazine, who doesn't see a picture of the clash and go, Oh my God, they look so fucking cool. I mean, they just look so fucking cool. The way their bass player stands, you know, they have like, you know, the way their clothes have like spray painted shit on them. So we, we, you know, we were like, for us, we were kind of looking around. We're like, God, no one else is fucking no one else is citing these references. We might as well take, we might as well be the guys carrying the torch. So we were looking at like the way Elvis Costello looked. That's why we wore suits. We were looking at the clash. We were looking at the sex pistols. Yeah. So, so I guess in terms of your success then, I mean, talk, you, I mean, you talk about obviously these, these real strong relationships and I guess you being so amicable with, with so many bands across the scene. Would you, I mean, do you, do you credit your sex success more for the, from those relationships rather than kind of a push from a label or a booking agent? It, yeah, I mean, is that really where you think, uh, what, what really propelled you in terms of that, that kind of worldwide success, the, the actual, you know, what you've developed and built, uh, you know, in terms of your, your peers and, and, and all those other bands? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's different for every band, but in our case, we were very fortunate that things, you know, I mean, things happened pretty organically for us from when we started, you know, and like, for instance, the reason we, uh, you know, we, we came out on Epitaph Records in Europe. Um, the, that happened because I was at a Rancid show 
in LA and I went to the after party, which happened to be at Brett Gerowitz's house. He has a beautiful house right off up yeah. from um, right behind the famous like riot house on the Sunset Strip. He this beautiful house and I'm somehow just kind of crashed this party and I'm talking to somebody and they're like, oh, what are you doing these days? And I was like, oh, man, you know, I'm playing guitar in, in uh, this band Sugar Cult. We're, we're doing some shit and blah, blah, blah. And I just hear this person go, who just said Sugar Cult? And I'm like, what? And I look and it's fucking Brett Gerwitz. Of course, the guy who owns Epitaph Records, guitarist of Bad Religion, fucking legend, right? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, unmistakable, this big, tall guy with glasses and tattoos. And, um, and I thought like, oh, shit, he fucking figured out like that I'm the guy in Sugar Cult and now he's going to like, you know, I thought he was going to be like, get the fuck out of my house with your fucking, you know, catchy little choruses, you know? And <laughs> I thought it was going to be like that. I was like, oh, shit, I better fucking finish my drink. I'm about to get kicked out of this party. And instead, he comes up, grabs me by the arm. He pulls me into the kitchen. He's like, he grabs his wife. He's like, honey, he's in the band Sugar Cult. And, and his wife comes out and they're like, no way. And they're like, OK. He's like, OK, so, so I want to know what the fuck's going on with you guys, because my son he had a son at you know yes. his son is you I know at the time he's like yeah. do you remember the story okay so i'm, I'm yeah, so you, you told me I, you told me to pull out the hard drives bro you know yeah but <laughs> go for yeah. it yeah so he he's like my son listens to you guys you know his son was like 11 at the time i think he's probably 30 now but he's like <laughs> my son listens to you guys and all the time and i have to drive him to fucking soccer practice or whatever and 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 of all the shit he listens to I like your band the best. And we're like, awesome. And he's like, you guys, you guys write really good songs. It's, uh, you know, it's coming from a different place. So I was like, well, here's a guy who loves music, who's a guitarist of, of a punk band, but is also legendary as a producer. You know, he's produced Rancid, he's produced yeah. so many things. Yeah. And I'm like, there, that's where it pays off to not try to follow a trend, to just go, hey man, let's make our goal not to be the best pop punk band in the world, but to actually write the best songs we can possibly fucking write. If the song happens to turn out sounding pop punk, so be it. If it turns out sounding mellow, fuck yeah. But we're not going to like not put Back to California on our record just because it's yeah. just because you can't do a stage dive to it. You know what I mean? Because it's a good song. Yeah. So like that was our, our number one goal was to just be a good rock band, not to be a good emo band. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of a lot of bands, you know, with all due respect, a lot of bands get get it wrong because they they feel like they have to like box themselves in to the like confines of some kind of a genre or like you know fashion movement or current trend and i think that's just so like creatively stifling you know i mean today you could look at someone like post malone who's totally doing his own thing and then you look at like all the other dudes that are trying to sort of just take one element of what post malone does and run with it and get the face tattoos and do the whole thing. But, but you can tell there's going to be a difference. You can tell Post Malone's going to last when the trend is over because he focuses more on writing good songs. And I know that sounds kind of weird because you might be looking, thinking like, you know, did the bloke from Sugar Cult just say Post Malone writes good songs? But like, <laughs> he does. I can tell that you can take a Post Malone. I, I bet you that guy can sit on the edge of his bed with an acoustic guitar and sing you one of his songs and it would sound like a good song. <laughs> Whereas there's a lot of the other sort of also rans in the genre that's currently happening right now, the sort of emo trap or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where it's just no, going to be, right. okay. Post, you, yeah. You got the haircut, you got the subject matter, 
you got the right plug in and you got the face tat. So, you know, of course you got the record deal, but as soon as the fucking wave crashes, they're going to fucking be over and he's going to still be standing. You know what I mean? That's kind of what we sought out to be. And we got that vindication because like someone who we have a lot of respect for, Brett Gerwitz was like, I want to fucking be involved with you guys. And, and right away he starts doing business at this party. He's like, are you guys signed worldwide? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Ask our manager, you know? And like, he's like, I want to sign you guys. I'm like, okay. So I call our manager and next thing you know, they talk like a week later and find out, guess what? We're signing to Epitaph in Europe and they put our record out in Europe. You know, it was was that simple. Like to to answer your question, like most of these things didn't happen because of like, Oh, we have this like tech, you know, I mean, we had good managers, but you know, most of it was just like us out there living our lives or just being a band. And then we essentially do what Chris Rowe did. We'd give someone our fucking music and then they'd go, Hey, I like it. Do you want to work with me? And we'd be like, you know, we'd be touring with a band and hit it off with them. And then they would personally call us and ask us to tour again, or we'd be on the warp tour and make friends with a band. And they would say, yo dude, hit me up anytime. Fucking, you know, we'd love to tour with you guys again. And you know, so it was a lot of relationships that were very organic. It was not a lot of like, have your booking agent contact their booking agent. Although I will say, yeah. one of our regrets, we our booking agent tried really hard to get us to bring out this band from Chicago as um, to open for us. She's, she was selling us on it, and we were like listening to it, and we saw their picture, and we were like, I don't know if I'm feeling it. That band turned out to be Fallout Boy. <laughs> I had <laughs> a only feeling would have listened that's, that's to her. the route yeah. that story was going. <laughs> yeah, we turned them down like three times, you know? And I mean, because we were like, oh, Stinger kind of looks like a dork. Um, really? I mean, do you think people are going to like this? They're on like, they're like a melodic band, but they're on a hardcore label. Like, and of course, yeah, then they became like the biggest band in the world. Now I'm like, Fallout Boy, if you're listening to this, would you please let us open for you someday? <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, most of the, other than that, you know, most of the relationships were all pretty organic. Warp Tour, you know, can't can't uh, credit the Warp Tour enough. That was that was just a, ended up being a real, um, you know, uh, energy source for for a lot of the things that happened to our band. Um, and then, I mean, this sounds so fucking, uh, you know, cliche, but I will say that like one of the things that really drove our band was our, our fans, like our fans were really, I know it sounds so fucking like, I'd like to thank our fans. It's not so fucking, um, you know, but I, you know, I don't mean it. It's, it's really is, it's not disingenuous. Like our fans were very instrumental in making shit happen for us. Like they, they, there was a lot of grassroots because we were on a record label, but we weren't on like a giant record label. So our fans would literally like have like chat rooms and message boards and plot and scheme and like kind of create their own sugar cult street teams that weren't even like officially like sanctioned by our band. They would just like, people would just like somehow go, man, I feel like this band needs to be heard by more people and they would get, take it upon themselves and get together with their friends and like make sort of like, so we all over the world, we had these like pockets of super fans that were like basically doing the job of a record company for us where they would like go to the records, call their local radio station and plead with them to give us a chance, call their concert promoters and say, why aren't you booking sugar call, go to the record stores and like, find our CD and put it in the front of the rack or like tell this 
special order the CDs at the stores if they didn't have them in stock. So like really we had this like army of sugar cult fans around the world, um, mostly in, you know, America and in the UK and in Japan probably. Um, and that was a huge thing because we would get to places. Um, it's funny. I've never really thought about this before, but we would, we would get to places to play and they would be like, or like some radio station would have us on to like interview me and Tim or something. And they'd be like, man, I got to say, like, you guys, your guys' fans are fucking crazy. Like they, they, they literally never stop fucking calling us and emailing us and, um, you know, just making their own homemade sugar cult posters and putting them up around town. Like, and so we were kind of like, you know, that was, that was a really good feeling to feel like it was, it was very kind of grassroots, um, in a lot of ways, you know, and, and obviously we did get some, some wonderful, uh, you know, lucky breaks with radio and, and, um, TV. So, you know, and, and some movies put our, our music in them and then all those little things kind of added up yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, it, it really it helped. Yeah, you had, didn't you, didn't you have, didn't you have Ryan Reynolds and Tara Reid on, in one of your Oh movies? yeah, dude, that's how, a fun how, story. How that that okay. That well, that Wilder movie, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Which was technically a commercial failure, but, but it ended up becoming kind of a cult <laughs> classic, you know, like, where like people would not one of those organic organic again, exactly but the, the, I mean you know again it's the same thing where you're like okay we're about to we're putting out our first record and then someone calls us up and goes hey man um good news and bad news bad news first there's no budget whatsoever they're completely out of money uh you know um for music good news they want to use your music on you know on their uh in their movie and they'll include it on the soundtrack as kind of like a constellation prize because back then movies would put out soundtracks and people would buy it and that was a good way to like so you know they were like look some 41s on the soundtrack american hi-fi's on the soundtrack foo fighters like a bunch of bands so we're like fuck yeah jimmy world we're like let's do it fuck it you know the you know usually with us the answer was yes before we even finished hearing the question you know it was like national lampoon they did fucking legendary movies um ryan reynolds was really a nobody at the time so they didn't that wasn't a selling point you know it was kind of like you know um some dude who's going to be big probably is in the movie and then this girl who was already pretty popular because of like american pie uh, tara reed you know we're like oh we know tara reed we know who she is so so that's cool we know national lampoon we know tara reed and why not? You know, it was like, why shouldn't we put our, so we basically did this. We said, I'll tell you what, they don't have any money. Um, and this is not us being smart. This is us just kind of being reckless and going again, going back to us feeling like this is our one chance to hook up with the hot girl before she sobers up. We got to get as much before we, you know, so it was, this, it goes back to that same spirit of sugar cult feeling like we sort of snuck into the party where we're like, Okay, not only can not only is the answer yes, they can use our song bouncing off the walls, but the but tell them that they can use anything they want off of our record. They just take our fucking record, start static, and fucking use it, you know, from nose to tail. Just chop that fucker up and use it all over the place. As much as they want, they can have it for free. You know? And they're like, Really? Okay. And so you know what happens? <laughs> if you watch that movie, it's basically a giant sugar cult advertisement. It's like our they yeah, just used us everywhere. I, yeah. So Yeah, I remember. So did you so did you did you notice no notice an impact off the back of that? I I mean was digital was the digital kind of music world 
like at a place at that point where you would kind of see that influx of like plays or was it i, I don't know that before. we saw that the good thing that happened was we ended up um they were like you know what we love your song we're gonna make it the single and um would you guys come play the party uh when they finish a movie they usually do what's called a rap party so it's, it's kind of like for all the people involved in the movie the cast and the crew and the um, and then they usually invite press. So like it becomes kind of a public, a publicity junket where they can get a lot of early ex excitement to sort of, you know, so they were basically doing this big party, um, kind of pre-launch party for Van Wilder. And they were like, we'd like to fly you guys out to play it. And so we were, again, the answer is fucking yes. You know, so we, fl we fly out to Florida to play something and they put us up in nice hotels and, you know, shit we're not really used to at that time. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's like, dude, we're fucking going to fly to play some party for a bunch of movie stars. Like, fuck, yeah, let's do it. You know, so it was just an adventure and we went for it. Well, we get out there and we play the show and whatever. It's cool. But then there's like this little like private bar um, just for the people that are like the I, I hate the fucking term VIP because. VIP should be the fucking people in the front row. They're, they're the ones who are fucking awesome. Usually the VIPs are like hangers on and like distant relatives, but like whatever you would normally tr traditionally what they call VIP, they had like a VIP bar just for like us and the actors. And so we're in there getting free drinks and Tara Reed's in there in this tiny little place. And she's like literally fucking sitting on like, Half of uh, she's sitting on one of my thighs and one of Tim's thighs, and just like right. close talking with fucking vodka spilling out of her mouth, spitting in our faces, <laughs> and you know she's just wasted. And she's like, "I like fucking you guys. Like you guys are so fucking cool. Like I I know everything about music. You know, <laughs> so funny." And so we were like, so like she, literally, she lived up to her reputation at that time. <laughs> dude, she she did not disappoint. She was a fucking train wreck, and it was a, it was beautiful. She was she she was a mess, but it was so fun because you know you're kind of like me and Tim were kind of looking at her, like looking at each other, like holy shit, this is it's this terrible. is She's wasted, and she's sitting <laughs> on our laps, and she's talking our fucking ears off. And like then she got up to like you know whatever, go to the ladies' room or something, and. And me and Tim, like, seriously had that, like, huddle. We're like, dude, seriously, look what Kelly Osbourne did for the used career. Like, this could be our chance, man. Who wants to take one for the team, you know? <laughs> so so Kelly Osbourne, we were thinking, okay, the used, and, and then Bert started dating Kelly, and then the used became, like, a household name because of him dating Kelly. And we're like, dude, one of us has to do this. And I was like, well, I have a fucking girlfriend, bro. You know, like I wasn't married yet. And, and he was like, well, all right. And I was like, I think one of us has to do, has to hook up with her. Cause she's like, you know, this is like two once in a lifetime. And then we kind of had, then we kind of were like, well, I don't know though. Maybe not. Cause maybe that'll fuck up the whole thing with the movie. It'll be awkward. And so literally we're like, I mean, it's, uh, to, you know, with all due respect to Tara Reid, like for all I know, she could have, she would have told us to fuck off. But we were like, we were thinking like we had a chance with her, you know? So long story short, we ended up going home with Ryan Reynolds instead. And we hung out with him. We didn't like sleep with him, but we got drunk with him. And he was wonderful. He was hilarious. And I'm glad we didn't go home with Tara Reid because, you know, she was really drunk too. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're gentlemen and you don't want to be that guy. But like, um, but I will say 
we're gentlemen to a point, but we're also fucking businessmen. And we were, while she was wasted, we were like, you know what? When we get back home, we should totally get back in touch. You should be in our fucking video. And she's all, fuck yeah, I'll be in your video anytime. You know what? Here's my number. I'll fucking be in your video. Just give me a, like, we're like, well, I don't think we'd be able to afford you. She's like, just buy me a fucking carton of cigarettes and a bottle of champagne, you know? And I'm like, seriously? She's like, fuck yeah. So, of course, like I did with Brett Gerowitz, I call our manager. I was like, dude. So I think I got Tara Reid to sort of verbally agree to be in our video. We follow up on this shit. And he followed up on it. And sure enough, we got not only her to be in our video, but the production company said, why don't we just pay for your video in exchange as part of the promotional, you know, thing, thing for the, for the uh, movie. And we'll have uh, Ryan Reynolds and Tara Reid in your video. And we'll cut in scenes from the movie and it'll help sell the movie. And we were like, okay, as long as we can, if you, you can agree that when the movie's over, we can take out all the scenes from the movie and just have it be the video, which is what you would see if you Googled bouncing off the walls and watched it right now. So yeah. it totally fucking worked. And we ended up getting two movie stars in our video, which of course, not only did we have our record company promoting the thing, but now we also had a major you know, movie company promoting it. And we got to go on like TRL and all these big things and like they would talk about us and whenever they'd go do press for the movie, they would say, oh yeah, we're in the Spanish Sugar Cults video. So it gave us a bunch of like mainstream recognition, which really helped us. And, um, you know, it's probably one of the reasons Bouncing Off the Walls became such a well-known song of ours because, you know, it just had that kind of fire, firepower um, behind sure. it. Um, but again, in a very, you know, in a very organic, just conversation between a drunk actress and a drunk musician kind of way you know which i love you know the more we talk about this the more i'm realizing like shit most of the stuff that ever happened to our band was you know billy joe giving us personally inviting us to open for them and oh here's a good story how did we get the green day tour to begin with before he asked us to, to open for them in japan how do we get the u.s tour well we go on the warp tour 2004 and our manager calls us and goes yeah. dude so the so I got a call from Green Day's manager, and he said not to get too excited, but that you're on the short list of the bands that you know the band has handpicked to want to have as an opener. Um, and so, of course, we're on the Warp Tour the whole time, going, "Holy fucking shit! I can't believe we might be opening for Green Day." And like every day, we're calling back home, going, "Do we get? Did they tell us yet? Did they tell us yet? Do we know yet? You know?" And it's all like, you know, hurry up and wait. Well. Long story short, eventually they called us up and said, yes, they do want you guys to open for them. And here's, you know, and so we're like, holy shit, we're touring with Green Day. That was amazing. Sweet. So at one point we're on the tour. We finally get to know the guys. And of course, Green Day is, it's like the opposite of Blink-182. You go to Green Day and it's just like this family. Like these guys, not only do the three guys in the band know each other really well, but like their crew or like, it's like all people who've grown up together, like from the same little small towns, you know, it's it's such an amazing environment like they have literally like you know a bar on stage hidden behind the drum set and they're like drinking cocktails together they're all hanging out like it's such a family vibe they're all sitting together at the table eating and it's it's a it wasn't like the awkward thing with that blink tour where it's all these like separate lives sort of that only get together when they're on stage so at some point i'm sitting there talking to like mike i think the bass player of green day um, yeah. and, and I'm like, dude, 
if you don't mind me asking, like, like, how did we get this gig? You know, like, how did you yeah, find out yeah. about our band? You know, again, it's like, why would you want us to open for you? You know, you could have anybody. And he was like, dude, let me tell you the honest truth. He's like, we were sitting on our fucking bus and MTV was on and we saw your video for memory come on. And we saw that you and Tim were wearing leather jackets. <laughs> and we were basically like, no bands wear leather jackets anymore. How fucking cool does this band look? We got to have them on tour with us so we can have someone to go shopping with. <laughs> I was like, so he literally, like, they made their decision to have us go on tour with them because they saw, they saw a clip of our video and they thought we looked cool. You know, that was it. <laughs> and then, of course, they probably listened to it and realized like, that, our, that the music was appropriate and whatever. But like, yeah, it was so funny. Cause, so like, you know, I mean, we would literally be hanging out with Green Day and like talking about clothes. I remember I gave, I gave Billy Joe like some shirt that I got at a thrift store and he, you know, had his, you know, on tour tailor sew it up so he could wear it on stage. And, you know, they, they were just, his on oh tour yeah, they had, a, they, they, they had <laughs> that. They had a person on tour whose job, this is the great, she, I can't remember her name. She was super cool though. And her job was to be there. She, her job was their clothes. So like they'd get off stage, take off all these soggy, sweaty clothes after a three hour set, and just throw them in the corner of their dressing room. And then she had a lovely job to take those clothes and then have them like ready to wear on stage the next day. So she had to like take them and like mend them if they got ripped and get them, you know, laundered or dry cleaned or whatever. And um, then hung up in their like racks. So they were ready for them to wear the next night. And then if they got new clothes and they didn't fit, they had to give them to her and then she would sew them and make them, you know, tailor them. So while they were on stage, while they were on stage, her job was to be the bartender. So she basically, there was a giant road case. It looked like something that you would have like guitar supplies in and it would open up and it was like every fucking alcohol you can imagine and mixers and, you know, ice buckets. And she was, so she was like their mixologist while they were on stage and their fucking tailor all the other hours of the day. You know, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. We haven't really touched upon the records you did with Sugar Cole. So you made three full lengths. I believe. I just wonder yeah, like, how do you look at those four lamps now? Because they're all obviously they're all a bit different from each other. Particularly the third one when you really kind of took a left turn. Like, how how do you feel about them looking back on them now? Um, and do you re do you revisit them much? Uh, you know, I I don't really listen to them very much, other than like once in a while, like you know one of my kids will be like interested and we'll play it in the car and then I'll kind of, but it's interesting because now it's been long enough that I can listen to it objectively as like, as right, just yeah. you would, if any record you bought, your friend turns you on to like, yeah, you remember this record from back in the day, listen to it. And I'm like, Oh, these are fucking, you know what? I, I, now I can, if I hear the records, I, I feel like we accomplished our goal because our goal Every time we made a record, our goal was, like I said, about the way like we presented ourselves, the way we looked. Our goal as an overall um, you know, project overall was to be a band that was not going to sound or look ridiculous in retrospect. Because we were such history buffs. So much of the shit we thought was cool was like old shit. So we were kind of like very self-conscious to make decisions that we're going to and you never know there's no guarantees it's all fucking gamble but mostly make try to make decisions that were 
not motivated by what was going to get us win us favor and popularity in the moment, but more that would be that would stand the test of time. And so I look back and listen to those records now, and I go, "Fuck, man! None of these records. I mean, Start Static was." the classic first record by a band. You go back and listen to The Clash's first record. Most bands' first record, they you see that there's something we were reaching for, but we just didn't know how to get there yet. And so it's a, it's very prim- primitive. The sound isn't exactly what we wanted it to be, but we didn't know how to articulate it. So it's, you know, you kind of get what you get. Um, and that's maybe what made our singer become so obsessed with, becoming a producer is because he wanted to learn how, you know, he, he didn't, he never wanted to have to be frustrated um, and be at the mercy of a producer or a mixer or something like that. He wanted to know how it was all done so he could have control over it. Right. So start static was more of us learning how it worked in the studio. Our producer was wonderful, but we, I don't feel like it sounds sonically. I feel like we were a little bit like, you know, we didn't know what our power was because we were a brand new band. We were like, fuck, I don't know. Are we allowed to argue with this guy? Like, like I feel like this first song, You're the One, we never played it that slow live, ever. And you listen to it on the record and it sounds really sluggish. Right. And there's certain yeah. decisions you make in the studio where you're like, okay, well, who am I to argue with this guy who's made like fucking million selling records by other bands that are successful? Uh, but you, and your heart and soul, you're kind of thinking, mm, I don't know. Yeah, um, the first record was produced by a guy named Matt Wallace and he, he had worked with the replacements. He'd worked with the, oh, Matt Wallace, um, sorry. Okay. Yeah. with uh, faith no more. He worked with, uh, well, he eventually did Maroon five and lots of, you know, he's an amazing guy, amazing producer, but you know, he's working with a bunch of fucking inexperienced hacks that are trying to make their first record. And then we're working with a guy who is just, you know, trying his best, but you know, the vision of the band hadn't completely gelled, but there's also a certain innocence that. We, without that innocence, you wouldn't have bouncing off the wall. You wouldn't have stuck in America. You wouldn't have um, pretty girl, you know, because those are us just, that's a sheer reckless abandon where we're just fucking like, like you listen to pretty girl, that's exactly us going, how do we mix? What would, what would it sound like if you mixed early, if you mixed watching the detectives by Elvis Costello with Kurt Cobain, you know, and you pretty much get pretty girl. Stuck in America was like, we had a crush on this band called the living end from Australia. And so a lot of what went into stuck yeah, in America yeah, and bouncing right off the walls was, was us crushing on the living end and going, how would we write a song if we tried to write a song like that? You know? Um, <laughs> so it was a lot of us like yeah, yeah. that first album was us kind of learning. It was kind of like songwriting school, you know, then there's like a song like lost in you, which is more like mellow kind of, uh, you know, campfire chords banging out on an acoustic guitar. And then you record it with an electric. Um, and then by the time we got to Palm Trees and Power Lines, we had already toured and gotten more confidence as musicians, more confidence as, as you know, young professionals. And we sort of could assert ourselves a little bit more and be like, okay, I know what we, I know what we want and I know how we're going to try to go for it. And then um, I know what we wish we would have done better, than, uh, you know. And so you go into Palm Trees and Power Lines which is the record that has memory and she's the blade and yeah. Yeah. And you know, by then we had, um, you know, music itself, you have to always look at culture of music. By then there was bands like mean, Jimmy Eat world, fleet American had 
you know, been a record we, we loved. Um, and that definitely influenced that record. We were obviously influenced by everything else that was going on, the strokes, the vines, the hives, like a lot of the rock and roll bands that were coming out that weren't necessarily um, living in our genre. You know, like we, we got a lot of influence from those bands too. Um, and, uh, and Palm Trees and Power Lines, I feel like, you know, we toured with Motion City Soundtrack um, and they rubbed off on us a lot. Like there was a lot of things that we, where we kind of learned from them. We always learned from the bands that were opening for us. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so we got a lot of, you know, different influences that yielded that. But again, I think that we were preparing ourselves, you know, we were never preparing ourselves to just be a pop punk band. We were always like happy to have the love but we had our mindset on like becoming, I think by then we were like, fuck this, man. We're not going to just like live here, live and die at the Warp Tour and in, in um, uh, Alternative Press Magazine. We want to fucking be the Foo Fighters. We want to be, a, you know, a giant band that can get as big as possible. Like we don't want to be limited by a genre, you know. So I feel like we were like becoming more and more confident with that record. Um, if you listen to some of the songs on that record, you know, you, you wouldn't really call them like genre songs, you know, they're just yeah. rock songs. Yeah. Oh, well, I remember um, thinking that at the time. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. But still yet, we still kept getting asked to go on tour with Blink-182 and all these bands and we're like, fuck it, this is awesome. Let's keep mm -hmm. going. But, you know, it's, it's wonderful if you can do that, um, but not be, not feel like you have to like play a role or follow a, a uh, you know, some con some imaginary confines, um, stylistic confines or whatever. And then um, by the time it came to Lights Out, I mean, this is the bittersweet story of our band is I really feel like we finally got to the point where we achieved what we were aiming for the whole time, which was to just be a really, really badass rock band. And, you know, with Lights Out, it was like, um, you know, we at that point, we just had even more confidence. We had a label with a bigger budget. They were, they were all systems go. They were like, you guys do whatever the fuck you want to do. We're fucking 100% behind you. Let's go. You guys proved yourselves. You guys have built, built up this grassroots following all over the world. Toured with Green Day. You've done all these things. Like, whatever the fuck you want, let's make it happen. And, and so we went in the studio and you know, we really like, you know, worked on lights out and we were thinking it was going to be like the best record we ever made. You know, we, we were like, okay, this is, this is Sugar Cult's grand arrival and all systems go. We made the record. We were very happy with the way it sounded. Um, the, the, the one that it's, it's funny cause it's commercially, it's probably the one that performed the worst. Um, right, but yeah, that was kind of to no fault of, of its own because unfortunately, and this is where the boring part of the story comes in, um, the record company that put it out was owned by some other silent partner and the silent partner, you know, venture capitalists or whatever they were, um, decided they didn't want to be in the record business anymore and they just like unceremoniously closed the label. And they had just signed Alkaline Trio, they had just signed Stray Light Run, they just like put our record out, all these things were happening. They were investing all this money in the label. And then all of a sudden, like probably like a boring fucking meeting around a oval shaped table. And someone's like, yeah, let's not, let's just close that label. Okay. You know? And then fucking 
there, there, there it went. Just like right. a bunch of legal bullshit. And, and then, you know, just sort of like everyone starts dabbling in other projects. And it's like any romance. So, so I, guess, sort of fizzles. I guess the end came quite abruptly and a, a bit Un unexpected. Then, yeah, it, it was not. It was. And, and this is like this. I mean, I've, I've, I've explained it this way enough times that now it sounds like a coy little fucking press quote. But like I always say, like our band never really broke up. We just kind of broke down. You know, we've never, Sugar Cult is still a band. I mean, we've never officially declared that we're broken up. Yeah, so, yeah. but, you know, it's like a relationship where if you don't, you know, say you're, you have a, yeah, say you have a girlfriend, but you never go out to dinner with her anymore. You never have sex with her anymore. You never talk to her anymore. You <laughs> never make any plans. I've been in some relationships. Right. Like and that. so what happens is it's sort of just like, kind of loses it's like a plant if you don't fucking water it it just eventually it's not you know it's it's sort of kind of left to its own devices and you know again bringing it back to our fans it's i feel like it's amazing that our fans essentially our band is kind of this flag without a nation and the fans kind of keep it alive like i'll go and like dj at these like revival nights like they have this thing in la called emo night and I've done actually oh, yeah, one in London yeah, called they, Face they, Down. They yeah. Oh, have you, yeah, have you done Face Down, down before? Yeah, oh, did I you? DJed it. Yeah, I, know I was there down. like two years ago. And it was awesome. Oh, I, okay. uh, I think his name was Stu. I can't remember. Um, but like, Oh, Stu from the famous class. Yeah, it'll be, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and it was just like, and I've done another one in like in, um, on the East Coast and in Las yeah. Vegas and just, you know, Colorado. Like, And everywhere you go, it's like, I have that weird moment where I play like memory and then I, um, <laughs> and I throw the fader down and I'm like, my heart just fucking sinks. Like no one's going to sing. And the crowd just fucking sings it like louder <laughs> than the fucking PA speakers. Yeah, and I'm yeah, like, well, cool. I, still alive. Feel good <laughs> it still matters to somebody. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I, but, I know, remember. Which is oh. good enough, man. You know, it's fucking good enough. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I yeah. remember you playing it at the Riff very well when I, when, when oh, I was right. there, which R was a fun night, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was super fun, too. That's another band. That those um, The Riff was this bar that was owned by Jack um, Barricat from, from All Time, Time Low. Low. Yeah, yeah. And we actually took All Time Low out on their first tour ever. Like, well, they were straight out of high school, and they um, they got the gig as, like, the they were, like, the opening, opening, opening band for, um, I think, our Lights Out tour, actually, when we went out headlining. And they like went on first, you know, and they were literally like yeah. teenagers, like they were fucking 18 years old and they were like, you know, so we knew them from back then. And then obviously they became really big and successful. And, you know, you feel like kind of you, you feel proud of them because it feels like your little brothers are doing well, you know. And um, so they were also it's amazing. The, the cool thing about this about this scene of bands, this family of, of um, bands is um you know it goes back to tim going in the studio with blink recently and then yeah. me working with jack on at his you know djing at his bar and just all these things is like it's like a giant family and no one ever really like forgets about each other it sort of reminds me on a bigger level of what you know how it was for all of our bands you know us the used all time low um you know fucking you know blink and, and it was just all of us kind of just like helping each other out through the years and recurring each other's lives and you know resurfacing in each other's careers um as time goes on and it's and you know it's, it's pretty cool 
pretty cool. It kind of makes you excited to see what's going to happen next, you know. Nice, cool. Well, I think that's uh, Chris. I don't know about you, but I think that's just like feels like a really nice yeah, place. Yeah, nice place to kind of. Uh, to to wrap up uh, and obviously if you're ever in London or visiting the in-laws in Newcastle then uh, you'll have to um, oh fuck yeah man I'd love to um, you know have a pint with you guys and uh, you know we've been talking on the phone I have no idea you you have no idea how fucking handsome I am I mean we gotta hang out in person (laughs) (laughs) thank you I I really appreciate it and you know uh, tell everyone in England uh, to uh, don't, not to forget about sugar coke. All right. <laughs> yeah. Nice one. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Cheers. Bye.